The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's been a mystery for centuries. How in the world did Shakespeare write what he wrote? Snobs have suggested that Shakespeare, the hick son of a glover, couldn't possibly have possessed the intelligence and educational background to write the greatest works in the history of the English language, and these snobs, thankfully, have been mostly disproven. Genius could have found this boy and then man coming from Stratford. There's no requirement of an aristocratic lineage when it comes to dazzling intelligence and unparalleled insight into the human mind and heart. Nevertheless, the cloudy nature of Shakespeare's biography and the textual clues of Shakespeare's works have continued to raise questions. How the devil did he know what he knew, not just about love or friendship or power, but detailed knowledge about the law or Italy or history? Enter Dennis McCarthy, a rogue scholar armed with new tools for textual analysis and a freedom from the shackles of conventional wisdom. He develops a new theory. Shakespeare the Magpie had a source for many of his works, Sir Thomas North, who wrote some plays that have since been lost. And enter Michael Blanding, a journalist writing about McCarthy's efforts, who found himself sucked into the rabbit hole of theories and evidence. Why wouldn't academics take McCarthy's theory seriously? What more evidence did they require? And could Blanding, teaming up now with McCarthy, help to find it? A mystery about the mysteries of Shakespeare, pursued by a pair of detectives. We'll talk to one of those detectives, the unsuspecting journalist who dove into the fray like a Watson turning into a Holmes. Michael Blanding, today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, this is a fun one today. I'm doing a lot of nostalgic looking back these days. I'm not sure why that is, other than the podcast has a new producer. Congrats to us. This is definitely going to be an improvement over the old producer. I can already tell. Her name is Emma, and you can reach her at historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com. That's a new email address, by the way. Write to her with all your guest ideas, all you writers and publishers and, and press agents public relations folks, especially those who are representing books about the history of literature, biographies, studies, and so forth. Maybe that's why I've been nostalgic. Welcome, Emma. Let me catch you up on what the show's all about, which has made me do some thinking. What is it about? <laughs> 400, 400 episodes in, we're still asking that question sometimes. 400 plus episodes. We were fueled by some heavy pandemic podcasting. My goodness, we spent a lot of time together in those months, didn't we? And I I guess years. We made it through together. But looking back, it seems I have learned something about myself and my reading habits and my relationship with literature. There are two authors I always start to get a little twitchy about. Two writers who, if they're not on our list for a while, and I haven't read them for a while, I start to get a little anxious. Time to check in. Time for me to touch base with them. They seem to be the, the two writers who mean the most to me these days. Maybe the two most indispensable. One of them is Chekhov, and the other is Shakespeare. That's not so wild, is it? I don't think that would come as as a shock to anyone, it's not like they've been hiding somewhere in the shadows. They're two giants. It's like saying there are two elements I like best, oxygen and carbon or something. There are lots to pick from. You might like hydrogen and helium and, I don't know, gold. Nothing against any of those. Lithium, nitrogen, got nothing against nitrogen. I just realized, oh, ooh. I just realized my two are killing the planet in the wrong combination but they are also the source of life in the right company. Where am I going with this? Should have said colors. There are lots of colors out there. If I say my two favorites are blue and red, it's not going to stop any presses, is it? It's not like Periwinkle and 
chartreuse. In any case, it's been a while since we've had a Shakespeare show, and so I was glad to have the chance to talk to Michael Blanding, who has been on a pursuit, which he will tell us all about. I have a an uneasy relationship with Shakespeare authorship questions, mostly because they can come from an unfortunate place. But this inquiry is different. And anyway, we, we get into all this with Michael, so why don't we just bring him out? His book was originally called North by Shakespeare. I think the pronunciation of that actually should be a little different, right? The title, North by Shakespeare, it comes because... The book is about Sir Thomas North and that theory that I alluded to at the beginning, and we'll hear more about soon from Michael. But I think the the title was also intended to be a play on North by Northwest, right? The spy and the intrigue and the chase. Don't you think? It has to be. Shakespeare wasn't writing a book called North. It's a play on words, so we'd we'd pronounce that book North by Shakespeare, right? North by Northwest, North by Shakespeare. I don't know. Nobody asked me to do that. I'm coming up, coming up with all this on my own, a little detective work of my own, a little induction. <laughs> now they've changed the title for the paperback, ending the dilemma for podcast hosts everywhere. North by North by Shakespeare or North by Shakespeare? We were suffering, people. But now the book is called In Shakespeare's Shadow, which is also a good title. Michael Blanding and his search through the Shakespearean shadows after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Michael Blanding, an investigative journalist and the author of In Shakespeare's Shadow, which tells the story of a rogue scholar named Dennis McCarthy, who may have discovered an undiscovered source for Shakespeare's plays. Michael Blanding, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Michael, let's start with your origin story on this project anyway. What drew you to the story of Dennis McCarthy? Yeah, so uh, as you said in the intro, I'm, I'm an investigative reporter. I have written for magazines, and I've written a couple of books on uh, a wide variety of topics. I'm, I'm by no means a, a Shakespeare scholar, hmm. but I'm always uh, interested in stories that have uh, compelling characters, and and uh, you know, particularly stories that can uh, teach us something or or uh, explain something that we didn't understand before. And uh, Dennis approached me after a book talk that I gave for my previous book, The Map Thief. And uh, he introduced himself as a scholar of uh, geography, written this book about uh, biogeography and, and yeah. how plants and animal species move around the world. And so, you know, as a map lover, I was very intrigued by that. And we went out for drinks with, uh, with him and, and his daughter and, and, you know, had a great conversation about maps and geography. And then about two drinks in, he sort of leans across the table and says, 
by the way, I have this new theory about Shakespeare and how Shakespeare <laughs> wrote his plays, and, and I'd love for you to write about it. And, uh, you know, as a reporter, I sort of rolled my eyes and said, oh, no, here we go. You know, this is some, uh, you know, lunatic uh, theory about you know, Shakespeare not being Shakespeare. And, and you know, I, I started kind of looking for the exits. But uh, a lot of what he said just made a lot of sense. And, and afterwards, he followed up and he sent me some of the things he'd written. And uh, I just uh, started getting excited about it. It really stoked my curiosity. And as a reporter, that's always a good thing when, when you start getting curious. And, and from there, we... We uh, just started talking more and more, and it, and it eventually culminated in this book. Yeah. Okay. So you uh, did not come into this with a position on Shakespeare's authorship. You weren't, and if anything, you were a little bit dubious about some of the claims that uh, uh, Shakespeare didn't actually write the plays. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I hadn't really looked into it very much, but, you know, certainly I'd studied Shakespeare in, in college as a literature major, and I'd seen Shakespeare's plays. I was a, a Shakespeare lover, and I just sort of always assumed that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare and, and all of these other theories about, you know, some other writer like the Earl of Oxford or Francis Bacon were just, uh, you know, uh, just somebody uh sort of, you know, creating this, this fiction. And, and, uh, I'd never really examined it that much and, and seen a lot of the, uh, the reasons why people have come up with those theories and a lot of the mysteries that are at the, the heart of a lot of Shakespeare's plays. Now, my understanding of Dennis McCarthy is that originally he was, uh, one of the individuals who was using plagiarism software and had kind of, a. Uh, applying some some technology to the question and had found some links and and so on that way. Is that uh, kind of where he was when you met him? Yeah, so he's an interesting character and was a really fun character to follow for my book and and to write about. You know, as I said, he um, was a, a scholar of of geography, but he never uh, really went to graduate school or got an advanced degree or or anything. He he was sort of this uh, kind of polymath, sort of self taught scholar. But he published this book with Oxford University Press and and published some peer reviewed articles on on the subject of um, biogeography and evolution. And uh, then about uh, fifteen years ago, he just started kind of as a side project looking at Shakespeare and, and saying, you know, wondering if he could sort of trace the origins of Shakespeare's plays the way you might trace like the origins of, of a species and how the, you know, they evolved. He wanted to see sort of how uh, Shakespeare's plays evolved. And one of the tools that he used was plagiarism software to sort of take the work of Shakespeare and take the work of other authors and uh, see what kind of um, textual fingerprints there were between the two. And, when he did that, he uh, came across this author by the name of Sir Thomas North. And when he ran uh, a, uh, you know, when he ran a test with all of Shakespeare's plays and all of Thomas North's writings, uh, he just got hit after hit after hit. All of these phrases in common and all of these uh, stories and ideas and in some cases, uh, stories and phrases that were, were used nowhere else in, in English and that seemed to be connected between Shakespeare and this other author, Thomas North, and just play after play after play. And that's what sort of set him down this uh, obsession that he's had for over 15 years now of looking into uh, the connections between uh, Shakespeare and Thomas North. Right. So this is, I mean, I'm fascinated by this question. I'm less interested in the, some of the Shakespeare authorship theories kind of depend on you know, counting the letters in words right. and, and it's almost like a numerology or, you know, sort of the, oh, the first first word in uh, or the first letter of the sixth word. In... <laughs> right, right. Of course, <laughs> you can always find what you want to find if you just use yeah. the right combination of words and letters. Right, right. And there is a, um, I would say, kind of an unpalatable side to some of the conspiracy theories, which is that Shakespeare... Someone educated in in uh, Stratford could not have been this genius, and and kind of a, there's sort of a snobbery built into it for some of the uh, people who kind of came at it with that as their agenda. But if I'm understanding 
McCarthy's position, it's more like uh, the one that, frankly, I like, which is, you know, Shakespeare wrote the plays, but he was a magpie like all artists are. He gathered what he needed. And let's see if we can find exactly what he was pulling from and what he was borrowing and what he was stealing and what he was was inspired by and so on in order to actually write the plays. Is that uh, is that a fair characterization of where McCarthy is? Yeah, so it's a, it's a lot closer to that. It's it's not saying as as you mentioned that someone else sort of secretly wrote the plays and you know Shakespeare was sort of a front man for you know some noble or something who who couldn't you know write the plays publicly. Um, McCarthy does believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, that all the plays that have his name on it were actually written by William of Stratford of Avon. So I, you know, I want to get that out of the way right there, that this is not a, a conspiracy theory per se. There's, there's no sort of conspiracy needed to understand it. But what does make it controversial is that we know that Shakespeare not only used these prose sources like Holinshed's Chronicles or Norse Plutarch's Lives, but he also adapted older plays. And, you know, even mainstream scholars uh, agree that he often took these old plays and rewrote them and adapted them for the for the public stage. But for some reason, they've been really curiously uninterested in trying to figure out who actually wrote those plays. They have just assumed that they were inferior, that they were old plays that, you know, um, some inferior writer wrote years ago and, and Shakespeare kind of took them and gussied them up. And, you know, he was the real genius. And what McCarthy says is that, no, actually, um, most of these plays that we now think of as Shakespeare were based on these older plays written by Thomas North. Mm. And uh, so it it does actually, um, it's more than just saying, you know, Shakespeare was sort of taking these prose sources and and cracking them into plays. It's it's saying that he actually was adapting these plays, but he may have sort of taken these older plays and, and added sort of his own unique brilliance. And it's more of a collaboration between Shakespeare and, and North than it is, uh, you know, a straight borrowing. Mm, right. OK, so let's um, let's save Thomas North for now, although I was especially interested to see that he was the uh, translator of Plutarch's Lives, which I've always associated as being uh, with Shakespeare as being one of Shakespeare's uh, strongest sources. But let's um, let's do this. McCarthy's work is said to answer many lingering questions about the bard and and what is what are those questions and why is this um, something that we're trying to unpack? What is it about Shakespeare's plays and Shakespeare the person that uh, I have a handful that I have in mind, but I'm wondering what, how you would answer that. Well, I had never really looked into it that much. Like I say, I'd never really explored uh, Shakespeare as an author before, but when you start looking into it and you start reading biographies of Shakespeare, uh, they're incredibly thin. We know mm. almost nothing about uh, Shakespeare aside from just a few basic sort of biographical facts. Yeah. And there's big gaps. Like, what was he doing for this 10-year stretch? And so Right. On. So yeah. there's all of these sort of periods. They call them the lost years. And, uh, you know, all we know is that he grew up in Stratford. He probably didn't go to university. At, at some point, he ended up in, in London. You know, he married. He he. <laughs> left his wife in Stratford, came to London, and then was a, a sharer in the Lord Chamberlain's Men and, and has his name on, on you know, a dozen or so plays and, that were published in his lifetime. And um, outside of that, there's just very little that's known about Shakespeare. And then when you look at the plays and think about what would be required to write the plays, uh, yes, there's sort of an education uh aspect to it that, you know, they draw on a huge variety of, of sources. And so that is, um, you know, pretty remarkable for someone who grew up the, the son of a, a glove maker in Stratford, but but not impossible. But what's really striking is just the experiences that are illustrated in the plays of these travels to Italy, yeah. of fighting as a soldier in, in war, uh, of going to, uh, you know, court and and uh, being, uh, you know, involved at sort of the highest levels of society. And uh, those are the things that, you know, are, are very hard to fake and very hard for someone who hasn't had that those kind of experiences to write about. And so there's all these theories that, oh, maybe Shakespeare just spent a lot of time in the tavern and talked to travelers who came from Italy. And that's why he has all these, you know, very specific details of, of you know, particular places that he that he never visited. Or, or maybe during those lost years, you know, he took a trip there himself or, or things like that. That scholars have sort of tried in, in many ways to kind of uh, 
you know, contort themselves to try to come up with an explanation for this. But it's, you know, part of the mystery that has spurred all of this, uh, all of these theories about, you know, well, maybe it wasn't Shakespeare, maybe it was someone else who actually was uh, a gentleman or, or a noble and did have these travels and did have these foreign experiences who actually wrote the plays. Yeah. And one I'll add to that is this specialized knowledge in the law, for example. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, and, you know, you may think that, oh, this was something that was, you know, just prevalent in, in society, but, you know, it's not like they had Wikipedia and Google back then, you know, uh, there many uh, of the plays have these very complex legal terms or these very particular terms of, of soldiery or falconry or, you know, yeah. all of these kind <laughs> of uh, aspects that you really get from, from learned experience. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to, to come up with an explanation for how Shakespeare could have had all of this, uh, you know, very specialized knowledge. Right. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and learn about Sir Thomas North and see how he might be someone who could fit into this puzzle, so to speak. Okay, we are back. Michael Blanding, what do we know about Thomas North? So Thomas North is a fascinating figure. He is best known, as you mentioned before, as the author, uh, or the translator, rather, of this book, Plutarch's Lives. And it is a group of biographies of Greek and Roman figures. And we know that that is uh, what Shakespeare used for his Roman plays, for Julius Caesar and Antony and and Coriolanus, they all come from stories from, from Plutarch's lives. But outside of that, uh, not only did he write several other translations, but he led this really colorful life as a uh, soldier in the Netherlands and Ireland, as a diplomat to France and Italy, and uh, as somebody who was, uh, you know, the son of a, a lord who sort of never quite lived up to uh, his father's potential. <laughs> he ended up sort of impoverished at the end of his life. And and so, you know, had sort of experiences of these extreme highs of, you know, these these travels and, and these battles and very exciting uh, incidents and these extreme lows of sort of, you know, living in, in, in poverty and never quite getting the recognition he, he deserved. And so you just look at all these aspects of his biography and, you know, you just start checking, you know, one after one, all of these uh, experiences that, you know, really could lend themselves to that kind of depth of feeling and, and that kind of, uh, you know, uh, variety of experiences that you find in, in these, you know, great works of literature that we know as Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. And I understand there's a journal, for example, that shows North's travels through France and Italy, and, and there are some links with that in, in some of Shakespeare's writings. Is that something that McCarthy found, or was that something that he found the significance of? Uh, he basically discovered it. It was um, in the, um, there are a couple of copies of it. There's one in the British Library and there's one in the Lambeth Palace Library in, in London. And there's just one of the copies has been attributed to Thomas North, but nobody ever really uh, read it. And so after McCarthy used the plagiarism software and started finding all these textual links, he started looking into the life of Thomas North. And so this journal was one of the things that he looked at. And this was sort of a travelogue that that North had written on the way to Italy. He was on this delegation to Rome in 1555 when he was very young. And it was a journey to reconcile Queen Mary with the Pope. So her father, Henry VIII, had sort of famously split with uh, the Catholic Church. And so she sent these these delegates to, to try to, uh, you know, make make nice with the Pope and, and you know, uh, make England Catholic again. And so on these travels, North wrote, you know, just incredible details about all of the experiences and all these sights and sounds and, and people that he met along the way. And one of them is this church in Italy that is full of these lifelike wax statues. And that same day, he also went to this palace and he saw these beautiful frescoes by the artist Giulio Romano. And why that's significant is because Giulio Romano is the only Renaissance artist that's actually mentioned in Shakespeare's plays. And he's mentioned at the end of The Winter's Tale when there is this beautiful lifelike wax statue that comes alive. And one of the characters in the plays says that it was created by Giulio Romano. 
And uh, in the context of the play, that statue coming alive has actually been interpreted as uh, it's, it's this very sort of religious experience of sort of uh, that's been associated with with the Virgin Mary. And, and some scholars have even associated it with uh, Queen Mary and sort of the return of, of Catholicism that was sort of sleeping, you know, and then kind of awakes after after many years. And and so, you know, which was, of course, the exact uh, mission that Thomas North was on for that delegation. And so, you know, you look at an example like that and uh, it just seems, you know, really uncanny that there would be all of these coincidences and, and you know, in this handwritten journal that Shakespeare or, or anyone else wouldn't have had access to that, you know, we only have today because it's, you know, turned up in, in the library. But, uh, you know, and that's just one example of ways that Thomas North's life has sort of figured into the plays and been interpreted in really interesting ways. Right. So is the theory that Shakespeare somehow got access to this journal or knew someone who knew Thomas North or that North had written some plays that Shakespeare was had either seen or or had access to a written version of it and was uh, able maybe plays that no longer exist. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So so the theory that Dennis has proposed is that Thomas North actually used his experiences to write a play that was sort of an early version of The Winter's Tale mm. and probably wrote it uh, close to the time of that delegation in the 1550s. And then uh, when Queen Elizabeth took the throne and was a Protestant, you couldn't really have kind of an overtly Catholic play. And so, you know, he put it in a drawer somewhere and then years later, uh, either sold it to Shakespeare or Shakespeare sort of otherwise acquired it through, you know, one of the theater companies of the day and then turned that into The Winter's Tale, which was uh, produced in, in 1611. And, um, you know, there's other examples, too, of these um, manuscripts and, and books that were in the North Family Library that, again, Shakespeare wouldn't have had access to. And so, you know, either he was using everything Thomas North wrote, including his private papers, or uh, Dennis is really onto something. And, and, you know, North wrote early versions of these plays that then Shakespeare adopted. Mm. Well, that seems like, you know, given that he was in the theater and there were theater companies, it doesn't seem uh, outrageous to me to think that there would have been a, a trunk full of old plays and things. This would have been decades before Shakespeare was writing, right? That's right. Yeah. And and some of these plays scholars have even identified. So if you look at, you know, the introductions to Shakespeare plays, you know, there's all these references of an early version of Hamlet, an early version of Romeo and Juliet, an early version of The Merchant of Venice. And, and they just sort of pass it off as, oh, yes, this was something that was mentioned in the Revels records or mentioned in some noble's diary or something. But when you start looking at it and you start matching up the dates, they really match uh, the experiences that Thomas North had and the time in which he would have been writing. And, uh, you know, it provides, you know, to, to my mind, a really sensible explanation for, you know, how a lot of these details got into the plays at the same time, you know, allowing for Shakespeare's authorship and maybe even substantial rewriting and, and genius. And, uh, you know, that it doesn't rely on any sort of secret cabal of, of writers that were trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Yeah. And, you know, that is always uh, maybe this is uh, why I wound up doing a podcast called The History of Literature. But that, mm -hmm. that is always one of my favorite parts of those editions of Shakespeare when they have those sources, because I think some people think that it kind of dilutes Shakespeare and his power to think that he was borrowing from predecessors like that. But I actually find it uh, just endlessly fascinating to be looking at the sources and then seeing the changes he made and seeing what he did with it. Uh, often, it, it, you know, it's almost like uh, Francis Ford Coppola taking The Godfather as sort of a hack novel and turning <laughs> it into a brilliant uh, film and, and just looking at the changes that you would make to a character or a plot point or... Uh, or, you know, layering it with language. Now, I guess we wouldn't know for sure uh, how much of Shakespeare's language was his own uh, and how much he had lifted. It's it's a possibility that he might have lifted, um, you know, soliloquies or, or other things, although I think there's probably enough evidence that Shakespeare was a gifted enough writer that we we probably feel comfortable that he would have been capable of writing what he wrote. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. I agree. I think it makes it a much more interesting and much more fascinating story to kind of look through this lens. And even mainstream scholars uh, have been increasingly looking at Shakespeare as being a more collaborative writer and looking at the hand of Christopher Marlowe or Thomas Nash or these other playwrights of the period and, and finding their hand in, in a lot of Shakespeare's plays. And it just kind of makes sense to me, like when you look at you know, for example, the movies or TV shows that we, 
watch today, there are all these kind of collaborative enterprises between a director, a writer, the actors, you know, maybe there's some ad-libbing that happens on set. And the more you look into playwriting of the Elizabethan period, the, that same kind of thing was going on where they would have, you know, these rewrites when they would take a show on the road and, and you know, an actor would drop out. And, and you know, there's all these early versions of, of Shakespeare's plays and the quarto editions. And, and you know, they, they were these kind of living, breathing uh, works of, of art that were constantly being changed and adapted uh, and not what we think of them today is like, you know, the complete works of William Shakespeare and we're very precious about about every word. And so uh, when I started learning about this and I started, you know, digging really deep into even the mainstream scholarship on on this issue, it really seemed to make a lot of sense and really excited me to think about, you know, how all these different hands were maybe uh, contributing to these plays and making them these masterpieces that we still read 400 years later. Yeah. And Shakespeare was getting demands from his audience, right? They were saying like, why don't you retell this one? Or why don't, <laughs> right, why don't right. you, uh, we want to, we want to have this character back or we want to see you right. do this. And, and it's almost like uh, you can imagine it being in a, a Hollywood producer's office where people are coming in and saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write Die Hard on a ship or I'm going to, uh, you know, well, this will right. be a Cinderella right. story, but it'll <laughs> be uh, set in the, uh, you know, on the Upper West Side or something. Um, so I think, uh, or I guess I should have said Romeo and Juliet would have been, right, <laughs> right. Was, I would have been even <laughs> better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so you mentioned mainstream scholars a couple of times yes. and my understanding is that McCarthy has not always been treated favorably by academics. Is it because he's an outsider who's trespassing on their turf? Or is it something about his methods? Or is it the conclusions he's reached? How exactly has he been treated? And what do you think is behind it? Yeah, that's something that I really explore in the book. You know, as a, as a journalist, I, I went into, you know, obviously, tell McCarthy's story and talk about his theories and, and investigate them myself. But I was just as fascinated with looking at how McCarthy has been received in his theories and and kind of more broadly on how knowledge gets created and changed and, you know, what it takes for somebody to kind of buy into a new theory about uh, about a particular topic. And, uh, you know, what's really fascinating to me is that um, McCarthy hasn't been completely disregarded by academia. Uh, he's been really celebrated sometimes when he comes out with a, a particular uh, article that's published in a journal, or uh, he wrote a book about a uh, a manuscript that was in the North Family Library. It's a source for Shakespeare, and he got all kinds of acclaim from scholars and saying, you know, it's amazing you discovered this new source for Shakespeare that you know no one knew about. And uh, so that's all well and good. But then when he sort of tells his larger theory and says, you know, almost all of Shakespeare's plays are based on the work of this other writer, Thomas North. He is, you know, looked at as this heretic and, mm. and you know, com either completely ignored or completely attacked by people. And that was really fascinating to me to say, you know, on the one hand, how can you uh, sort of support these pieces of the theory and yet not even be willing to consider the larger uh, aspect of the theory? And I, I think there's some, you know, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think that part of it is, is, uh, you know, feeling like this outsider is sort of, uh, you know, impinging on on their turf. And who is he to, you know, come and, you know, he doesn't have a PhD from Columbia, you know, who, who's he to, to tell them, uh, you know, or, or let alone Oxford or something. And, uh, you know, he's an American without a degree, you know, how has he sort of discovered this Shakespeare secret that everyone missed? And so there's, you know, interesting, you mentioned the snobbery of of the anti uh, Shakespeareans, anti Stratfordians, you know, I think there's there's a, a bit of snobbery on the on the Stratfordian side as well. But I also sort of have some sympathy for it, because, um, you know, I think about sort of a scholar who's, who's lived their whole life with a particular version of Shakespeare, and it's been passed down and passed down from from generations. And, you know, uh, very diligent scholars, you know, putting together these pieces of this puzzle, you know, maybe on one particular play or one particular aspect of the plays. And and then you have this sort of brash, uh, you know, young scholar who comes in and says, you know, actually, everything that you thought you knew about Shakespeare is, is, if not wrong, then at least, you know, not quite how you thought it was. And so I understand that resistance. And I understand that that skepticism. And, and uh, I think that it takes a it takes a very open-minded and very kind of uh, strong and confident person to kind of overcome their own 
you know, deeply seated ideas to, to really consider something new. And, and uh, it's not easy. And, and, you know, I don't take that lightly. Yeah. And in fairness to them, they may have had uh, stretches where they had to, uh, you know, debate whether Christopher Marlowe had written it or whether right, Mr. Francis right. Bacon had written it. And they probably are a little bit, there's probably some scar tissue there of, um, you know, boy, this is yet another assault on the idea. And haven't we gone through this over and over and over? And this never really pans out the way that, that the advocates um, argue for and so on. But it's very true. But it's, it, on the other hand, you know, it is an interesting question of, well, what evidence do you accept and how much do you, uh, you know, what what is it that allows you to consider another source as being at least somehow inspirational or influential or, you know, to be part of this, our understanding of this work? And when do you just draw the line and say, no, no, that that's too speculative? Yeah. And I should say that there is one scholar who has actually uh, become completely converted to McCarthy's ideas. And uh, I profile her in the book as well. She is a woman by the name of June Schluter, and she's a professor emerita at Lafayette College in, in Pennsylvania. And um, she is uh, really sort of an interesting foil to Dennis. You know, he's very kind of brash and excitable, and she's very uh, sober and got this, you know, wickedly dry sense of humor. And the two of them together, uh, Dennis could not have gone as far as he has without her because she's really taken a lot of his kind of exuberance and and really crafted it into, you know, more academic arguments. And they published books and, and papers together. And um I, in some ways, she's just as fascinating as Dennis, if not more so, because she's someone who was in the Shakespeare world and really uh, deeply immersed in the particular uh, version of, of William of Stratford that's sort of standard in academia. And yet, for some reason, she was able to really look at it with fresh eyes and, and show this curiosity and give Dennis, you know, not immediately, but uh, over time, uh, give him uh, a, a hearing and was uh, gradually convinced by the evidence to the point where she's now actually doing scholarship with him and uncovering things that, that uh, he hasn't even found. So there's sort of this odd couple sort of buddy uh, comedy aspect of the book, too, of you know, looking at these two uh, people from different worlds that have sort of made common cause to try to you know, <laughs> tilt against the windmills of academia. So what is the evidence that North wrote plays? Are there any uh, productions of plays that we have records of, or does anybody talk about them? Or apart from just the textual analysis and matching things up from his journals and seeing them repeated in Shakespeare's plays, do we know of any uh, productions or or any actors or anyone who mentions Thomas North? Yeah, it's a complicated question, and it's one of the areas that I think is most difficult for people to swallow and say, okay, you know, maybe Thomas North really used a lot of Tom. Uh, I mean, maybe Shakespeare used a lot of Thomas North's writings, but uh, you know, where are these plays that you're saying that Shakespeare adapted? And the simple answer is that almost no plays from the Elizabethan period have survived in manuscript, uh, including Shakespeare's plays. We have one fragment of a play that may be Shakespeare's uh, in manuscript, but even that is is controversial. Um, so these things just were not kept unless they were actually published. They were they were not um, they didn't stand the test of time. And, and I think only 10 percent of the plays written in the period have, have, have survived, you know, even in, in publication. So so there's that. But there's uh, also these there are these references that seem to point to North as the author of plays. And uh, Dennis has spent years sort of looking at these uh, kind of uh, either satirical pamphlets or other plays that sort of, uh, you know, mention North and sort of coded language. And this is where it starts, you know, getting a little bit uh, like what you were talking about before with like the codes and the ciphers, but instead of sort of like looking at, you know, numerology, it sort of looks at these references, like someone will talk about, you know, the North Wind or we'll talk about, uh, you know, mention, uh, you know, sort of the, um, uh, work that Thomas North write, and then in the next sentence, you know, mention uh, something that looks like one of Shakespeare's plays. And, and you know, it was the way that a lot of the writers at the time sort of wrote about each other, because, you know, as a gentleman, Thomas North, you know, wouldn't have really been uh, sort of allowed to, to write plays. It wasn't sort of something that was kind of done in polite society. So you sort of had these, you know, other writers that were sort of poking fun of him through these, you know, pamphlets and, and other plays. 
but there are, there are also some uh, some references like to payments uh, to Thomas North for uh, in the amounts that would have been paid for a play, and it's right next to the payments for for players. And there's other uh, you know references from from writers that sort of praise North's writing and not just his translation, but sort of his originality and his writing. And so there there are a lot of these uh, references that that McCarthy has been able to kind of drum up to support this theory. But there's no kind of smoking gun. There's no you know, a letter or something that says, you know, I really enjoyed Thomas North's play last night. And and that's something that if he were to find it, it would add a lot more credence and I think really add to the acceptance of his theory. But so far that is that has eluded him. Mm. You know, this is a, a totally off the wall analogy, but I'm sort of reminded of uh, uh, Barack Obama, the story <laughs> where he was teaching as a as a professor of law and he would read these speeches and he and then he said, you know, nobody talks like this anymore and nobody uses rhetoric like this anymore, like these politicians did, Robert Kennedy and people like that. And and then he kind of, you know, he made his name with that famous speech at the convention. And I'm almost imagining Shakespeare taking a look at Thomas North's plays and saying, God, these were really good. You know, that like everyone's forgotten about this guy, but, you know, there's a lot here. There's a lot here that we could still use today. And this, you know, this shouldn't have faded the way that it did or or this never really, you know, took off. But I think the audience would really appreciate <laughs> it now or something like that. It's possible that that could have happened. Yeah, well, you know, some of Shakespeare's plays are really kind of looked at as throwbacks to older types of writing. Like, um, for example, there's this uh, genre of writing called Senecan tragedy, which was this kind of uh, these, you know, very uh, emotional uh, tragedies where everyone dies at the end. And, and they were kind of based on the, the work of the Roman writer Seneca. And it was really popular in the 1550s and 1560s. And people look at Hamlet now as uh, sort of a a kind of neo-Senecan tragedy that was written much later. And, and even at the time, people sort of made fun of it and said, oh, you know, here's the here's another Senecan tragedy. Aren't we over? <laughs> are we over that by now? So there is something to what you're saying that, uh, you know, it could have been that that North wrote this uh, Senecan tragedy uh, based on uh, this tale of this Norse uh, prince, you know, back in the day when that form was popular. And then, you know, years later, Shakespeare took it and, and uh, you know, converted it into this play that we all read today as sort of the pinnacle of literature. Yeah. OK, so I've also come to understand that you did not just limit yourself to interviewing Dennis McCarthy and writing about things from his perspective, but you actually dove into the archives yourself and started looking for things. And what documents or I guess works, I should say, were you looking for and what did you find and what happened to you as part of this story? Yeah, I sort of underwent my own journey through the writing of this. And, you know, I, I really approached it as an investigative reporter. I said, I'm going to, you know, be skeptical. I'm going to talk to people on all sides of the issue. Um, I'm going to give Dennis a hearing, but I'm, I'm not going to sort of take his word for it. I'm going to do my own research, too. And so I actually went to the archives, to the National Archives in London and the British Library and the Bodleian Library at Oxford and spent, uh, you know, hours and hours looking for letters and, and documents and, and books myself. And one of the things that I found was, uh, Dennis had actually known about this, but he'd never really looked at it. It was a copy of one of Thomas North's early books called The Dial of Princes. It was his first translation. And this was a copy that was actually owned by him and that he'd actually written voluminously in the margins. Mm. And I started reading it. And, and as I said, Dennis hadn't even looked at this yet. And I started seeing all of these um, references that seemed to... Uh, call to mind Macbeth for me. Mm -hmm. And the marginalia was written in 1591. And, and I'd never even talked to Dennis about Macbeth. I didn't even know his theories about it. But I started showing it, this to him. And, he's, and he had sort of independently already determined that North had written his version of Macbeth in 1592. And so, you know, that sort of matched up. And uh, then I started looking uh, for more books uh, from the North Family Library, and I found several others that actually had Thomas North's uh, marginalia in it, uh, including one that seemed to uh, almost write out the complete plot to Cymbeline, which was a play that was um, that, for as far as we know, Shakespeare didn't even write until after North died. And so 
uh, I started just finding all of these really uh, uncanny, you know, quote unquote coincidences of, you know, Norse own handwriting in these books that, you know, were uncannily similar to Shakespeare's plays. And so it became harder and harder for me to uh, maintain my own kind of neutrality on, on the issue as I was sort of finding this evidence myself that Dennis didn't even know about. And, uh, you know, I had to admit to a certain point that I was believing in this theory myself and that I was I was no longer just acting as a journalist, uh, sort of as a, you know, kind of impartial observer, but that actually I was now part of the story and, and was collaborating on this research myself. And that was a really interesting journey for me as somebody who, you know, has been trained as a journalist. And yet at the same time, I, I need to be honest with with the reader about how I was, uh, you know, finding merit in, in this theory and really thinking that there was something to it. Mm. And I understand that there are some possibilities waiting for us in the Folger Shakespeare Library. What do you think might be there? Yeah, so um, I have actually continued. My my book was published in uh, hardcover last year. It just came out in, in paperback in Shakespeare's Shadow. And yet I have continued to do work on uh, this story and continue to investigate along with Dennis and look for more of these books from the North Family Library. And as I say, I found about a half dozen of them so far with, with Norse handwriting in them, but the treasure trove of books from the North Family Library, actually at the Folger, mm. there are uh, at least 40 books there that we know just from the card catalog that uh, were previously owned by the Norse, and some of them have marginalia in them. Unfortunately, the Folger is closed for renovations and has been for the past uh, year and a half and is not going to reopen until next year. And so I'm dying to get in there and I'm dying to look at these books and see if there might be any more clues there. But unfortunately, we're just going to have to wait. Well, and and it's one thing to think you might be finding a handful of, of clues, but you could find a smoking gun. Right. And and that's the thing that, um, you know, would, would really lend credence to this theory and really, I think, take it out of the uh, realms of speculation and, and start having it seriously considered. Uh, you know, I, I think that between Dennis and June Schluter and, and myself, we found a lot of intriguing evidence that all kind of points in, in the same direction. But boy, it would be really great to, you know, have that one piece of marginalia that's uncontrovertibly, uh, you know, a line from Hamlet or, or, or something or, you yeah. know, something uh, in, in another letter from someone else referring to Thomas North in, in reference to one of the plays. I, I think that that would really be uh, uh, the thing that would really need to, to happen to kind of take this more into the mainstream. And I didn't realize that he lived as long as he did. I mean, it's it's possible he could comment on Shakespeare. I suppose that might have been noticed <laughs> before. But, you know, he you could have Thomas North saying, uh, that guy stole yet another thing from me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, he actually lived until 1604 and, and, you know, Shakespeare, that was the heart of Shakespeare's career there. And, uh, you know, one of the pieces of evidence that that Dennis has, has looked at is actually this satire called Green's Grotesworth of Wit. It's got this kind of strange name, but it is sort of famous for actually referring to Shakespeare as, you know, this upstart crow in the shake scene. Right. Uh, sort of famously. But if you read the rest of that satire, it also talks about this sort of courtly writer who was selling sh plays to Shakespeare and Shakespeare was adapting them and uh, producing them as his own. And so, you know, it's very possible that North actually knew Shakespeare and approved of this and was, as I say, he was in poverty at the time, could have been selling these old plays to Shakespeare and, uh, you know, seeing them produced under Shakespeare's name and been, you know, completely okay with the arrangement. Yeah. You know, it seems almost ridiculous to us now to think, well, why would Thomas North you know, why wouldn't he want credit for being Shakespeare? Right. But at the time, you know, it's not as if anyone foresaw that 400 years later, we would view Shakespeare as the genius of all geniuses. And, you know, it could be that he was just kind of like, oh, yeah, here's a way for me to make some cash. Kind of like someone might go, uh, <laughs> you know, help ghost write a screenplay or or do some work, you know, write a song for uh, uh, Whitney Houston or someone and <laughs> and just view it as, uh, you know, well, this is uh, this is just how things have worked out for me. No one's producing my plays. And so uh, I can do it through this guy. And that's kind of interesting. I make a little money and, uh, and that's fine. No, that's right. That's exactly sort of how 
things were back then that, you know, the, this whole idea of copyright didn't really exist and plays were just looked at as this sort of ephemeral thing that were mostly just produced on stage and, and weren't really, uh, you know, sometimes they were published during a plague year or something for the company to make a little extra money, but uh, they weren't really looked at as these great works of art that we look at them today. Most of them were published in, anonymously until the 1590s. And uh, Thomas North could could very well have looked at his prose translations as, you know, Plutarch's Lives as sort of the great work of his life and uh, not, you know, really thought much about the plays or not really thought about getting credit for them as, as a gentleman. He wouldn't really want to be associated with the, the public stage and, you know, all the rabble and kind of, you know, uh, uh, exuberance of of the uh, of the stage and and you know people throwing vegetables and and all of that and and just you know been very happy to to sell these these plays to Shakespeare that he could then adapt them and you know kind of make them into these kind of crowd pleasing dramas. Mm. Okay, well, I think now uh, knowing the listeners to this podcast as I do, as I have come to learn about them these last several years, I think they will be uh, very eager to read your book in Shakespeare's Shadow. Michael Blanding, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, thanks for the great conversation. It's been really fun. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Michael Blanding for joining me. Please do check out his fascinating book, In Shakespeare's Shadow. And my thanks to Will Shakespeare. I'm familiar enough with him to call him Will, right? Billy Shakespeare, my old pal, and Tommy North, my new one. I'm just, my thanks to them. My, what am I talking about here? I'm Jack. Oh, oh, what's on the calendar? Ulysses. Coming up, Hemingway, Dr. Seuss, Elizabeth Bishop, lots of good stuff. Please do subscribe and tell all your friends. I'm Jack Wilson. No, don't tell your friends. I'm Jack Wilson. Tell all your friends, brackets, about the show. Close brackets, period. New paragraph, pause, heavy inhalation. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>